Welcome to the Vine Church Podcast. Today I'm joined by Pastor Eric Raymond. Uh, Eric is a pastor in Massachusetts, and I'm going to let him introduce himself in terms of uh, who he is and what makes him tick. But he's written a book called um, He Is Not Ashamed, and I'm really looking forward to uh, unpacking that book with Eric here today. And so, Eric, welcome to our the Vine Conversations podcast. Thanks, Zach. It's good to be with you. Yeah, man. So uh, maybe, maybe we could just start. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, family, where you live, anything else you want to talk about that would help our people get to know you. Sure. Um, so I live in Watertown, Mass., which is a town that borders Boston on uh, Charles River. Uh, we have six kids, my wife and I, Christy, and I have six kids and one granddaughter. So our kids range from 11 to 26, and we've been married for almost 28 years now and uh, been in pastoral ministry for uh, about 17 years. So it seems like a long time. But uh, yeah, love, love our family, big family, a lot of fun. Uh, love doing ministry here in Boston and uh, look forward to talking with you. Yeah, man. What were you doing before you became a pastor 17 years ago? Yeah. So it kind of leads into my, my story of how the Lord brought the gospel to me. So I grew up uh, in Massachusetts and wasn't, uh, wasn't a Christian, didn't grow up in a Christian home. Actually, was a Catholic kid altar boy, uh, but the family was not really necessarily like uh, practicing Catholic. It was more of a, um, just like a nationality or ethnicity type thing. We just went sure, to church. Sure. Do it. I didn't really know anything. Joined the military out of high school. It seemed like a good option uh, for various reasons. And that landed uh, me uh, in Nebraska. We met my wife in San Antonio, Texas in training. We get married to non-Christians and uh, end up in Omaha, Nebraska. And so do the military thing for a while, and then really have a, when the Lord brings the gospel to me in the service, uh, whole life orients another direction. And so training becomes a priority. And then I worked at an insurance company, um, a broker-dealer for a while, went to school, and then um, went into, into ministry full-time about 2005. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about your church. What um, what kind, What's your church like? And tell us about your context where you serve. Yeah, so we serve our context, Watertown. Um, so if you think, if you've seen the movie uh, Patriot Day, that's where they, they found the Boston bomber. It's about, okay. about a block and a half down the street from us. We're just right right down the road uh, from um, from you know Boston. And so it's a it's a like we call it a suburb. Uh, these little towns all around Boston. Um, we're about three miles down the road from, uh, Harvard university, a lot of universities around us. So the town that we live in and we, our context ministry is just really eclectic and diverse. You know, you have everything from students to professors to, uh, blue collar workers, uh, just very, very eclectic biotech, all kinds of things in the area. Our church, uh, is a church plant that began, uh, 12 years ago, I did not plant the church. A friend of mine did. And then I came, we came here about five years ago now. Uh, the church itself is about 65 members in the church. Very diverse congregation. We're about, um, well, if you if you take up that 65 members, we have 20 different nations represented as first generation um, 
citizens here. So it's wow. like they're coming from many different nations in there. And there's, so it's just the, the town is just very diverse. And so you have a lot of uh, a lot of different opportunities for ministry in our context. Very low Christian rate, you know, as far as the stories with evangelicals in the Northeast. So it's very low, you know, hovering right around 2% evangelical. And so not a lot of Christians, not a lot of churches, but very grateful for the, the ministry and the opportunity here in the church. We just had the opportunity to plant a church recently and send out people there. And so that's been awesome to see. And the partnerships for the ministry here are really, really exciting. So, yeah. We're excited the gospel works, you know, the Lord's powerful, he's yeah. nice to save people. And so we're, we're really, really happy about the ministry. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's similar here in Madison where we have um, a massive university that brings a ton right. of ton of diversity, um, but it's a very non-Christian context in the city itself. Um, and so it's it's cool to live in the place like this. Um, yeah, I, I'm... I'm really curious, Eric, the, the title intrigued me of your book, um, He's Not Ashamed, and then all the, all the chapters, he's not ashamed of those with embarrassing stories, he's not ashamed of those who opposed him, he's not ashamed of those who are overlooked. It's honestly like a, a concept, like who is Jesus ashamed of or not ashamed of? It's just a, um, an angle on thinking about Jesus that I, I honestly I don't know if I've considered that much. Help us understand, like, where did this angle on it come for you and 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 the whole book, and maybe give us a thirty thousand foot view of the book um, as you would articulate it. Yeah, I think big picture wise, um, it's it's been something that's been kind of rattling around in my brain, you know, in my soul since I became a Christian twenty five plus years ago. Uh, I was just so overwhelmed. And I mean that by like shocked and grateful and humbled and just just absolutely floored by the reality that God would forgive me my sins, forgive my sins. Yeah. And that somebody like Jesus would identify with me. Um, so, I, I mean, even and just feeling like I didn't belong all the time, you know, as a new Christian in different contexts. It's just like, how how do I fit into this? And then beginning to see that it's actually, you know, it's, your identity, connection with Christ, union with Him. That's how we all get in. Right. And uh, so that that whole thing has just been something um, that's just hit me. It seems like it never, it's never left. It's always been something that's on the forefront of my mind. It's just that I am, I am in this family because of Christ. And so the concept of family rings true in my, just my context with my, my family, my wife's family, and just seeing like, you know, who belongs and who's part of that family. And how we get in and, and how we get to be part of the church. And we're all not, you know, we're all not these perfect kids. And so he, he lets us be part of his family. That's always been something that's just wrong in my in my ears. But as far as like, okay, let's put a book together and think about that. I think the when it began to crystallize in my mind, I was preaching through uh, Genesis. And you probably appreciate this back just thinking like ministering and trying to prepare a sermon. And, and I was in... Uh, uh, Genesis uh, 38 or 39, but that horrible story of um, yeah. Lot's cave, right? right? And I was just struggling to make a Christ connection to the passage. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to give my people hope this week of Christ other than just the kind of predictable Jesus saves from 
a messed up world and he's going to fix the world. Like, is, is there another more precise Christ connection than this? Yeah. And so I, you know, probably like Friday made the connection to, you know, the, the genealogy connection and how Jesus comes from that, that story in Lot's cave, you know, ultimately coming through Ruth and the Moabitess coming into the genealogy and, you know, listed in the New Testament. And that, that hit me. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I was just shredded, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and go to preach it. And uh, I'm preaching it. And after the service, I just said, you know, I basically say something like, you know, if, if you're ashamed of your past, uh, you need to know you have a savior that, that couldn't possibly be ashamed of you. Oh, and yeah. make the connection Hebrews too. And if you think that because of something you've done or something that somebody's done to you, you're of little use to God, look at the story and right. going into into Genesis and going into Hebrews and going into genealogy. And I just had people come and kind of like, and our church is coming to me talking about like, this is, I've never considered this. I got all this baggage and, you know, and it turned into a, it was like Moses tapping the rock. I mean, like it's gushing out. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, maybe this is something that needs to be, need to be explored a little more detailed. So I was thinking of different, different ideas and just kind of on a scratch pad for, you know, probably the last seven or eight years, just trying to think through what, what might a book look like on something like this? And so that's where really the genesis of it, kind of personal experience and then specifically preaching. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. It, it, it sounds like um, a lot of themes of identity, a lot of themes of like, um, I mean, honestly, I think of just God's sovereignty and salvation that he chooses those that he loves um, and loves those that he chooses. And like, there's always that playground mentality of like, am I going to get picked last if we're picking teams? And that the idea that Jesus says like, yeah, I'm not ashamed of you. You're on my team. Like we're united. Like that whole concept is so powerful um, and it strikes so deep. And um, I'm really thankful for that, Eric. That's, that's beautiful. Would you say that um, before you were Christian, you carried around like guilt or shame that you didn't know what to do with? Yeah, I think it was actually that became uh, a tool to bring me to Christ. I think I was uh, indifferent as a soft word. Uh, I was, ang- I think, probably angry at God in very different ways. So I, I don't think I didn't walk around with a consciousness that there was a God and that I was accountable to Him. Yeah. Nor did I really carry around much guilt for anything I did. I was very, I was my own God. Mm-hmm. And everything I did served me, and so uh, it was. It was when the Lord revealed my sin in light of who He is. First, using I think my natural general revelation, just by virtue of conscience, yeah. that hit me. And within a short time, I seek out somebody because I'd never heard the gospel in my life, so I didn't even know what I was getting into. I was ready to make vows and do whatever I needed to do to pay penance. Uh, but then when I when I found the gospel that I'm the type of person that Jesus came for, I couldn't believe it. So yeah, yeah guilt, guilt was once my once I saw my sin for what it was, I was undone. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested about all these different titles. He's not ashamed. Uh, titles of the chapters, 
not ashamed of those with some embarrassing stories, not ashamed of those who opposed him, not ashamed of those who are overlooked, not ashamed of those who were far from God, not ashamed of those who have nothing. He's not ashamed of those who are weak. He's not ashamed of those who still sin. Do you feel like in our current cultural place and time, like one of the one or two of these chapters really connect um, with maybe people where you live or just as you sense like where we are in the United States in general, um, in any of these that you feel like kind of jump out to you in terms of the cultural um, application in, in, in a unique way? I think, I think fundamentally the concept of shame is yeah. countercultural. I mean, it's not that shame is countercultural, but somebody being not ashamed of something like everybody's carrying around shame. I mean, we're ashamed of our past. We're ashamed of stuff we've done. We're ashamed as a country or as a people. For stuff. So it's like everybody's doing it. Everybody's canceling people for different reasons because they're, yeah. you know, they can't tolerate it. So the concept of somebody who has the highest standards imaginable. Uh, enduring and dealing with the highest offense imaginable and then not being ashamed of us and like saying, Hey, you know, work this thing off and then you'll be, you'll be able to be uh, welcomed at my table. Like, like Mephibosheth gets to sit next to David, like get out of here. That's crazy. Um, So that concept I think is, is alien. And I think it, it causes people to think, Oh, what that, I think that's an avenue for apologetics and evangelism that, would be useful. Um, I, I think, you know, really any chapter, depending on context or where you are, I mean, like the week, right? So we are, I mean, academics, probably similar to where you're doing, where you are, uh, academics or startups are very, it's all people are doing, working, working, going after it. And weak people get gobbled up. Yeah. But there's there's a savior that, but there's a there's an, like an abiding reality in the back of your mind. Like, I don't want to be weak. And then you see the reality that you are weak. For, for this infinite God and see Jesus identifying with weak people and that, that hits, I think everybody's got embarrassing stories. I mean, we just, you know, that, that's another connection point. Um, and then people that are opposed. I, we had a guy get converted in our church um, a few months back. And his, his thing was that if the Lord could love Saul of Tarsus, right? Like he, he was just saying like, his thing wasn't even that he opposed God, necessarily like he didn't really get that he actually thought he was a pretty good person but he knew that saul was such a horrible person right and that god could love somebody like saul then maybe he could love someone like me and so that like that guy ends up saying i want to be a christian because this god loves someone like saul you know so i think there's all kinds of avenues into our, our experience um yeah. through this, this concept of shame yeah yeah it's really fascinating it feels like the, there's kind of like uh, polar opposite realities in our culture where on the one hand, there are certain parts of our culture that, that say like, you need to be yourself. You need to be true to yourself and to not be true to yourself is in some ways immoral. And if you you should never be ashamed of yourself, if you're being true to yourself, I mean, that's the theme in so many Disney movies and all that. And on the other hand, there's such, like you said, such a strong culture of you should be ashamed of yourself uh, if you hold these kind of A, B, C, and D beliefs or you deviate from the cultural dogma. Um, 
So it's really fascinating where, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, it's not just fascinating, but I, I think the better word would be strange, where on the one hand, it's don't ever be ashamed of yourself on the other. And sometimes, man, you, you should really be ashamed of yourself. It's just very confusing, I think, for yeah. people to navigate that. Yeah, because that sword, it does have two sides, and it's wielded by whoever self-authority Exactly. Decides to it. And you don't even know which one you're going to get hit with at different that's times. Right. But yeah, I think that's it, it, both points, whatever side, it's it's devoid of grace. It's either, you know, personal merit. I can do this. You deserve it. You shouldn't be ashamed. Or the other side, it's like you deserve, you know, fiery retribution. And no, no, no forgiveness is possible. No, yeah. On both sides of that spear, there, there's no grace. Uh, you know, right. it's either the lie of, of self-worth in the sense of like merit or the other side, self-condemnation. Well, and how much more comforting for believers to have the reminder biblically and from your book here that like there's somebody who actually has an authoritative voice that can sort out um, that confusion. But even oh, yeah. more, even more so, I think of like the evangelistic opportunity here where there's probably lots of people that feel caught up in that confusion of shame or not shame. And how am I like, is there any authoritative voice in the universe that can help me sort out this confusion of, I don't know who to listen to. And on the one hand, I'm supposed to be ashamed. And on the one hand, I'm not supposed to be ashamed. And man, that's, that's a heavy weight to carry. Oh yeah. I think you're exactly right. You don't know, and you're never going to get it off. Like, it's just right. like you turn to somebody, make you feel good for a little bit. It doesn't actually bear the burden. Yeah. Because nobody's telling you necessarily the truth about it. Right. You know, Christ actually tells you, listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to square, square up with you and tell you, you are, you, you really are a mess, but you're just the type of mess that I love. And I can not only yeah. affirm you your mess, but I'm going to fix you out of your mess. And then he shows us how much by entering into the mess with us. I mean, what kind, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. So Eric, answer this question. Um, who is Jesus ashamed of? Yeah, it's, it's weighty, right? I mean, yeah. that's the, the last, the last chapter those ultimately who are ashamed of him. Mm-hmm. Right? He says it a couple of times that, you know, those who are ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of them on the last day. So uh, those would be people that would ultimately refuse to take up their cross, deny themselves, and uh, follow him. That people that would would look at his worth and, and judge him to be to la- be lacking. Um, look at his word and not seeing it as something that they want to submit to, and his cause not being something that they want to follow. So at the end of the day, those who don't believe in him, yeah, racist gospel. Yeah, I, I know pastorally I've had conversations with people who say, um, man, what if I find myself in that moment where I'm asked if I um, am a believer or I'm under some severe persecution? Um, like, I don't want to go into a hard place in missions because I'm scared that I won't have what it takes. And I might do the verse that you just said where like the pressure's on. And I just can't take the heat and I, I don't identify with Christ when I should because of, because of fear. Like, how would you, um, how would you counsel that person? Yeah, I think, I mean, even in church history, we've seen this happen at different times of persecution and then how, how people end up 
grappling with it after after it's done? How do you receive these people into the church or deal with that when we know there's been a denial? I, I, I think ultimately in a, in a big sense, it's, it's helpful. Well, maybe back up. It's helpful to look at a couple of characters like Peter and Judas. Uh, we can agree that both Peter and Judas denied Jesus in one way or another. Right. Uh, one, Peter, uh, appears to have repented over what he's, he did and and even, I mean, even had it called by Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen, and I'm, but I'm praying for you. The devil doesn't get you. You're going to return, strengthen right. your brothers, like the whole thing. Right. So Peter's denial does, in the big picture, look different than Judas's denial and because he repented and continued to follow Jesus and definitely showed by his life and his own death that he wasn't ashamed of Jesus. The other, the other would be Judas with this premeditated denial and just kind of his heart just gets away with him and he runs and he denies Jesus and that's the disposition he ends in. Uh, so we, we should say there's two different levels of this whole thing that we're talking about. Uh, so certainly we don't want to be in a place where we deny Jesus and we're not repenting of it. We also don't want to be in a place uh, where we're planning to deny Jesus and then bagging on like, I'm going to repent afterwards. That doesn't sound like a, a healthy place to be in either. So I, I think we just have to know like, if, if somebody is in a place where they either have denied Christ or are scared that they might deny Christ, the, the, the answer on that is always going to be, you're going to flee to Jesus. You're going right. to, you're going to come to Christ and ask him for forgiveness because you're, you know, you work it the other way. You're not saved by uh, not denying him or, or you're not saved by affirming him in that big sense. You're saved by his grace. And that includes confessing faith and believing. So, I would just say to somebody that's it shouldn't be something that's going to hinder your work in ministry because like i don't want to go on this mission trip because i might or a mission work because i might deny jesus well you know you're not kept by yourself anyway or your own strength to to get to heaven by your own works so you're, you're kept and sustained by the grace of god through christ so believe trust walk make it a matter of prayer not to deny christ but to continue to to be not ashamed of him when we do find ourselves ashamed of him uh, in one way or another by either not sharing the gospel or not identifying as a Christian or maybe an outright blatant denial in some way in a moment of weakness, that should cause us to be scared to death and bury our face in repentance and tears like Peter and right. cry out. Right. Um, so just keeping in mind that we can't out sin his mercy, but we should not presume upon his mercy and we should not forget about his sovereignty and keeping us. I would kind of put all those things together. Amen. There's a lot of pieces there Amen. that need to get worked out. Uh, but what we definitely want to be concerned about is like somebody who doesn't care that they're doing it or plans to do it or is not broken over it after it happens. I mean, Judas was upset, not not because of the glory of Christ, but really, I think his own personal shame that engulfed him. Yeah. He wasn't able to find the heart of repentance. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's well said, Eric. You said you have six kids. I'm wondering if some of these themes that you write about in this book um, intersect with your parenting. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think just fundamentally the big picture of love mm -hmm. uh, and the way we look at God. So, you know, being a dad, being a father in one sense, um, you try to reflect your heavenly father and your love to him. So right. I can't remember if I put it in, in the book or not. Uh, something I, I say, my wife and I say regularly to kids, uh, especially when they 
know, they mess up, do something. They just say, you know, I just want to remind you, look them in the eye, swear them up and say, no matter what you, you do, I'll never love you any less. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's because you get that from the way that God looks at us and just reminding them, like, I, I don't love you because you obey. I loved you before you were even born. You know, so as a you don't stay in the family as a Christian or as a child in our house because you obey, uh, right. but you because you're part of the family you obey, and so you just Amen. like you're showing that even in the context of discipline. But I think just the overall affirmation of your kids, you know, it's, it flows out of the gospel and your Amen. love for your kids based upon the way that God's loved us. So I just try to to frame that up uh, as often as I can, just to try to make my love or my wife's love for our kids reflected of that which is in the gospel yeah and i i think of like the statement from a parent to a child i'm ashamed of you yeah i think cuts deeper than than i'm angry with you or um i'm i'm um whatever but like like i'm ashamed of you like that's a that's a, a powerful statement. And then, then obviously the opposite is just as powerful in a positive way. Like, I'm so glad that you're on my team. You know what I mean? That we're on this family team or whatever. Like, um, I'm not ashamed to call you son or daughter, you know, yeah. just like the word says, you know, like, um, the father to the son, you know, like this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's Trinitarian love. And, and as Jesus calls us to himself, he's not ashamed to call us friends, you know? And man, so like that, I feel like that, that, that we have so many people at our church that are new parents and just that whole idea of, um, having the approval of your physical father and mother is so powerful, irrespective of obedience. Like you were saying, obedience is going to go up and down. Right. But but like just the power of those words. And then that can reflect, you know, as, as you said, like, so, so it's so true. Like for better, or for worse, as parents, we can um, help or, or hinder our children's understanding of, of their heavenly father. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. And even the way, uh, you know, so many Christians think about God, the father, right. They think they, they, they think even if they're not, necessarily saying this but way we act sometimes we think that okay god is very angry Mm -hmm. and jesus placated his anger his wrath uh propitiated his his anger made him favorable towards me but the only reason why god loves me is because jesus died for me right and i think like there obviously the death of christ secures god's love for his people redemptively but we can begin to have this personal relationship with Jesus in a very distant relationship with the Father. But when we read passages like John 3.16, we're reminded that God loved the world, and it was his love for the world that actually ordered the cross. Mm-hmm. He sent his son out of love. Uh, Ephesians 1 tells us, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. So like the whole thing was ordered by love. So... Yes, the death of Christ secures our relationship with our Father, but the Father is standing behind the actions of the Son, even in, from a covenant of redemption standpoint, 
ordering the cross out of love for us. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, I mean, I know in light of the, what the gospel teaches that God knew everything I was going to do, and yet he still loved me mm-hmm. before the foundation of the world. And so, I mean, that's, that's got to affect how we can we relate to him as our, as our heavenly father. Amen. Amen. Well, Eric, this has been a really, really great conversation. I'm, I'm so thankful for this book. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful for the angle of it that is unique and I think very necessary for our discipleship in, in the cultural time and place that we live. And um, Anything else you want to share with uh, some, uh, a group of people in, in Madison, Wisconsin that love the Lord? Oh, I'm not prepared for this. I went, to, I went to Wisconsin. I just have to say I admire the um, the various ways that cheese can get on the menu. We oh, did a, my wife and I did a, um, like a anniversary. I'm trying to think of the town we were in. Uh, it was awesome. We loved it. But like we were so impressed <laughs> by the amount of cheese. It was so good. Like yes, uh, what's it called when you fry it up and it's just the like cheese curds. curds. Cheese curds. Oh, it's yeah, it's dude. In everywhere. It is. Cheese. It is. Yeah, so man. That was neat. And then all the ice fishing. Like it was wintertime. Like oh, people yeah. are driving trucks on the on the water. I'm like, my goodness. You never seen that, that before. You never seen that before. Maybe, maybe once or twice, but it was like it was going on. Like there was <laughs> trucks on the water everywhere. That was good. And the other thing that I noticed up there. I mean, this is totally irrelevant to any type of encouragement. But I noticed that. I don't know if it's all of Wisconsin. But there's a there's a word that I thought was unique to Massachusetts that if you say it in other contexts, people look at you and they think strange. But you know, if you get a drink in public, you know, like you need a drink, you go over and get it like at a public place. Yeah. Some places call it like a water fountain. Right. We, we grew up calling it a bubbler. Right. And I understand that in Wisconsin they actually call them bubblers as well, at least in some places. So it, I think, I think Okay, I'm not I'm not native to Wisconsin. I'm from Iowa, and in Iowa, it was always the drinking fountain. But yeah. and in Madison, where I live, it's always the drinking fountain or the water fountain. But when I hear people from northern Wisconsin talking about it, they say the bubbler. Yes, yeah, so a fountain. A fountain is what you see at a zoo, like right. spraying up. Right, right. A bubbler is something you drink out. So anyway, that was uh, that's funny. But no, I think. I mean, I can imagine doing ministry in Madison with because you get the University of Wisconsin right there, right? Right, right. Yeah, I can imagine the challenges because you have this liberal area, yes. In the, from a political standpoint, in the midst of a you know probably a reasonably conservative state, exactly, exactly. Other, so it tends to be a lot of friction, and I can imagine uh, just as a church in that context, the the challenges to make sure that the flag of the gospel is the one we salute, not the red flag or the blue flag or Amen, social or race issues or all the other things that that tend to divide us. That you know, important things but tend to divide us. So I can just imagine those it's a great opportunity for the gospel to shine, but also challenges as well. So I'm sure you, it's it's hard work for you and the other elders in the church. Keep your focus yeah. on Christ. Yes, sir. That's a good word. You nailed it. Um, And we're going to try to keep doing just what you said. So, well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us and giving uh, uh, some time to to our church. And um, and next time you come out with another book, hopefully we can have you back. Sounds good, Zach. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right. You bet.